I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Every time there's a new evolution into information technologies, there's a period of great disruption. That's what's happening right now. We've seen the battle-ready war of words traded over Twitter between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. We've seen terror organizations spreading their ideals through hate manifestos posted on social media. In the past, wars were waged on the battlefield, but now with the interconnectedness of the world, we have the reach to disarm, incite, and assault our enemies from afar with words alone. After all, words build narrative, the story we want to share with the world about who we are, why we're here, and what we intend to accomplish. Of course, narrative has always been a part of war, Would people really step up to lose their lives if they didn't believe in what they were fighting for? If they hadn't been convinced that they truly were fighting a threat? An enemy? But your country needs you posters are no longer necessary, or effective in that matter, in the modern era. All you need to spread the word is social media. And so, our guest today is the journalist David Patrick Arakos, author of War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. Chapter 1. The Changing Face of War In the modern age, war is just as much about a clash of narratives as it is about a more conventional battle between armed forces. Our last episode, with Professor Vincent Brown, explains how history has been rewritten over the years to clear away unsavoury narratives. But that ability is swiftly disappearing in the modern era. Social media has democratised the power of storytelling and given our stories permanence, a way to revisit them over and over again. These days, nobody, no matter how powerful, can escape persecution. So as we're able to tell previously untold stories, as we're able to change the hearts and minds of those in conflict with a single tweet, David says that in war, narrative has become more important than ever. In the final analysis, you know, when you get to the battlefield, bullets and tanks, they count. You know, if you're dead, you're dead. But what I'm saying is the type of wars that are fought because of the type of system we live in very often, you know, I mean, look, what matters more in, in Israel, Hamas, you know, the, the, the physical outcome is predetermined, right? Hamas has no chance of militarily defeating Israel, none. Israel has no, is never going to go and wipe out Hamas, it's not going to happen. So what remains to be actually contested, to be actually genuinely contested, the narrative battle. And that's how Israel can lose and that's how Hamas can win. So yes, when most of our wars are fall like that, and when I say ours, I mean, as I look at, you know, the Sri Lanka, you know, the Tamil Tigers were militarily wiped out by the government. I mean, it still happens. But the general tendency is toward the latter. Absolutely. And you look at it because, you know, as big a state as you can get, Russia, look what it did in Ukraine. Absolutely eschewed conventional warfare. And, you know, it could have easily rolled into Kiev had it so desired. But that is just not permissible nowadays. So you have to fight in different ways. Unless you want to be a sad. And who wants to be a sad? Mm. One of the things you talk about is the notion that if, if the commander of a of an army from millennia ago were to stand on a model battlefield it wouldn't look too unfamiliar in terms of what was being contested what would be unfamiliar is this we've almost lost this nation v nation approach to warfare and it's nation versus some kind of ideal or some kind of cause we're seeing that more and more aren't we 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, nation, you know, state on state warfare is very rare. And, you know, even when it happens, so look, theoretically, Iraq versus the coalition or America versus Iraq was state on state, but it actually wasn't. You know, America, the coalition versus Iraq lasted a week. It was then an insurgency that, that we were fighting for the next however many years. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, it's like the greatest threat in recent times has not been the nation state's army, it's been ISIS. Uh, which is basically a franchise now. You can't kill it because, you know, the more you kill it in Iraq and Syria, the more it appears on the streets of Paris and Brussels. What are we seeing then in terms of the use of social media? You talk, um, you have a number of uh, individuals that you use as your case studies. And quite a number of them are are children, actually, or younger people. We're, we're hearing stories through their voices and through their um, either blogs or Twitter accounts that we've not, heard before has that redefined the way we understand the narrative of warfare i think so i mean look what, i mean i say in the beginning of the book that you know one of the most striking things about my book is that it's a book about war it's based around eight characters and you know hard not you know pretty much none of them are soldiers i mean the israelis are soldiers but they're information soldiers you know and no one in that book carries a gun who's a main character half of them are women which you know i mean war has traditionally been not exclusively but overwhelmingly a male pursuit Half are women and most of them are civilians. And, you know, Farrar is, is a literal child when, 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 it, when it happens, when, when the war takes place. So this just shows how war is changing when some of its biggest participants and players are, are this sort of demographics. And yes, look at the youth. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, someone like Farrar Bakker is a, is, a, is a digital native. She grew up with the internet in ways that you or I did not. So absolutely, it allows voices like hers to be heard that never would have been heard. Because, you know, if you look at an Israeli incursion into... Palestinian territories in the late 90s, you're going to get reports on CNN and BBC, and that's it. Unless you physically go there and speak to Palestinians, or you're reliant on, you know, Western journalists transmitting their reported speech back to you in the form of, you know, bite-sized quotes in, in, in some text, an 800-word text, you're never going to hear those voices. So yes, absolutely, an absolute sea change. It reminded me, and this may seem odd, it reminded me, just when you talk about um, Farah and how she, she was a child when this all started, there are shades of, of things like the Diary of Anne Frank in all this, which is a much more analog version of what you're talking about. But that account was universally rejected by pretty much every pub major publishing house when it, when it first came out. It, is, it has gone on to become you know, the famous book um, and has been remade many times on, on film and television that, that we know today. Is this an extension of, of things like that, of children documenting what is happening to them as it's happening? Yes. Uh, and look, I mean... So, you know, people said, you know, I say in the book that people called her the Anne Frank of Gaza. The notable thing about Farrar is like when Foreign Policy, the magazine, puts up their hundred infant, you know, the hundred people of the year, they don't put her in the activist column, they put her in the chroniclers column. They call her a chronicler, non-activist, which means they're a storyteller. And she tells a story. The difference is, is that unlike Anne Frank, is that Farrar had some, and I'm going to come back to this, some ability to affect things in real time. You know, Anne Frank's diary wasn't being read and published every Every, every night. Now, you know, look, the thing with all of this is that there is a temptation to say, oh, it's all changed, everything, nothing is the same, nothing is as it was. I mean, it, this is, you know, this sort of cyber utopian thing that, you know, you give a man or woman access to the internet and it will set them free and they will throw off the chains of the oppressors and all this stuff, and it's all nonsense, you know. In the final analysis, the tools that are used by the oppressed will more generally come to be used by the oppressor and they'll do it better because they've just got far, far greater resources and far, far greater manpower. But, you know, Farrar Bakker, like, what did she do? Did she change Israel's military calculations? Of course she didn't. 
What she did though, was she sort of mobilized this huge outpouring of India, or helped to mobilize, or became a focal point of this great groundswell of indignation, which translates into political power, which ultimately does affect military calculations. Now, Operation Protective Edge was 51 days. That's the longest war in Israel's history. You know, I've spoken to IDF officers and they say, look, we probably couldn't fight a 51 day war again. And it's because of stuff like this. It's not, it's not because of any military considerations, any practical, you know, hard power military considerations. They can fight for 100 days against the last makes no difference. You talked about your experiences in Ukraine, just going back to Putin, and how you were staggered by what you were hearing on the ground versus what was being reported on the mainstream um, news outlets. There was a major disconnect, wasn't there, between the narrative on the ground and what we, yeah. people like me, were hearing back here in London. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably true always. But, you know, I mean, at every level, you know, even to the degree that, you know, the BBC would call me and say, so we hear there's no electricity or running water in the net. And I'll be like, well, I'm sitting in a cafe drinking cappuccino, so I don't think that's correct. You know, so that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's like, it's just the tools, you know, the social media tools. As we were sort of making our way through the sort of, the, the, you know, from one to four occupied cities to the next, I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to the BBC to find out where it was safe from separatists or not. I just checked Twitter. You know, it became a, almost like a, like an, a sat nav, you know, a sat nav for, for, for terrorists, you know, avoid the checkpoints, avoid this and that, because, you, you know, you can aggregate the wisdom of crowds on it. So, yeah, I mean, look, things were changed. As I said, like in 2010, I was in the Congo and I was embedding with the UN peacekeepers against the Lord's Resistance Army. And it's, it's just like a war, you know, conflict in a different century. I know, I know one is Africa, one is Europe, but nonetheless, you know, they're two entirely different conflicts, even though you could arguably say both of them are armies facing off against, you know, against militia groups. You know, absolutely is like a different century. They're only four years apart. There's what's interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. But one of the things that fascinates me is, is the difference between the use of social media for the spread of information versus the spread of disinformation or, or incorrect or propaganda for the want of a better term the use of propaganda in conflict that's not new is it what's new here is the medium that we're using in terms of um spreading the information in terms of social media that's new but the use of propaganda in conflict isn't is it no no i mean like propaganda is as old as war itself propaganda is as old as human civilization like thucydides in the peloponnesian war he bemoans essentially people believe in crap because they're too lazy to seek out the truth. I mean, he basically says it in all most of those words. They can't be bothered to search for the truth. No, this is, I mean, this is ancient, but look, the point is that what is the public sphere? Like back in the day, the public sphere was this accretion of magazines and newspapers and little journals, and then TV and radio. Now public sphere is that to a degree, but it's basically the major social media platforms of the day. And these are, these are curated by algorithms that are designed, you know, not through an accretion of, of, of public ideas, but through, you know, in Silicon Valley dorm rooms, basically. And what happens is we, you know, the communicative modes that we use are just ever present. You can't escape social media. You can't escape your phone. You can target people, great. You can target people because you can have access to their data and they'd never disconnect from their devices really. So you can get them more or less. Every so the principle is the same. The means are just much, much easier. Chapter two, Twitter is many things. Given that social media has such an influence on war, it's no surprise that it also has a significant role to play in politics. Previously, it was only on mainstream media where we could find out about the plans of those in power. And given the varying degrees of bias among news outlets, there had always been restrictions on the truth that we were being told. But now, national figures, governments and organisations are starting to take control of their own narrative by speaking directly to the public through social media, whether that's for good or for bad. 
Some are even refusing to be interviewed by conventional news channels, much to the consternation of the mainstream. Social media is like, take Twitter, okay? Twitter is this place that if you're like you and me, I imagine we're fairly engaged with it, or at least you're on it, you look at it. Most people don't care about Twitter. Now, the thing with Twitter is a very interesting thing because Twitter is powerful because the corporations are, you know, the corporations listen to it. Like Nike will do stuff because Twitter is saying one thing. A lot of things like academia, the media, they follow Twitter a lot. But at the end of the day, you know, Twitter is Twitter and the Tories have been in power for 10 years. So there is that disconnect between what's on Twitter and what's in the real world. So at the same time, you have this idea that, you know, now it's more and more social media, but look, still the ordinary person watches TV. That's how they imbibe their politics. You know, you can tweet something and it's great and maybe it makes the news. You know, Donald Trump tweets stuff that make, you know, cable news. That's how he gets his message out. He knows that his, his followers, are, his, his, his voters aren't on Twitter, but that the mainstream media will pick up from Twitter and transfer. So look, the mainstream media is still really important. You know, so people saying, oh, we don't need the, you know, politicians don't need the media anymore. I'm not sure you fundamentally do. But yes, you, you, I mean, like, it's like, yeah, you're right. Like now there is this increasing sense and this was Trump actually that did it. And now people, you know, and Cummings is, is realized this, you know, Cummings is an obsessive focus group, for example. You know, it's like, well, I'm, we're not going to go on Andrew Neil, And that's unthinkable. And, you know, that comment came out Downing Street, you know, sources say, I'm sure it was Cummings. They say, why, why do we care? No one knows who this guy is. And it's true. Like people know who Gary Lineker is. I look at Andrew, he's got a million followers on Twitter. He's a big deal. In the country at large, they don't care. So there is this sense that actually, you know what? The media is less important. I mean, you know, we don't need to count out to it in the same way. And in a sense, that's probably healthy. And except that I do think that if you're running for prime minister, you should be subject to a grilling. And he didn't want to go on because he just didn't want to be grilled because he looked stupid, like Corbyn looks stupid. I'm not sure that's entirely great for democracy where you can just dodge that. You always could have done the cost now for doing so because, you know, faith in the media is so low or far less, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make a huge amount of sense. And, and I, as I say, I do have some sympathy for it because they are flipping the narrative and saying, well, actually, which legal document does it say I have to go on Andrew Neil? Now, you're right, from a democratic perspective, it would be good if, if scrutiny were upheld on our elected leaders. But I'm not entirely sure we're living in that space at the moment. And what Cummings appears to be doing quite cleverly is redefining the scrutiny to which politicians should be, um, should be held. And um, well, I agree with you and I have sympathy is that what he's doing, the reason he's, the only reason he's able to do that is because he's reading the public mood. If the public really cared about that, he'd be screwed. The whole, you know, this is why Cummings recent boo-boo uh, boo was the definition of hubris because he was a man that banked everything time and again on actually understanding what the public really cared about. Because if he went on Twitter, it was 90% remain. But Cummings understood that this isn't the world, that London's not the world, and that people out there thought something different. So I have sympathy, because how can you not have sympathy with someone who's redefining stuff with, in tune with what people want and believe? So I have sympathy. With, yeah, you know, I do have a sympathy with it to that degree, uh, which, you know, he totally misread the public mood, it seems, anyway, on, the, on his excursion to the castle. Mm. I've been inside um, major corporations and seen executives staring yeah. at a monitor that has... Yeah a social media feed set to specific hashtags. And they're usually about the company but with you know, yeah. for whom the executives work. It can be a very sobering experience for a, a CEO or a, you know, a, a chief financial officer to be stood staring at a screen as, as this stuff is coming through directed straight down the line at an organization. People are genuinely concerned and nervous about the reaction of the world to either them or their product or who they are or what they represent, aren't they? 
Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you be? And I mean, now we live in a world where if people don't like it, they'll let you, they can let you know, you know, in no uncertain terms, and it can be extremely unpleasant. I mean, back in the day, this is before my day, even, you know, you had the classic letters in green ink, right, to the editor. Now, if you're on Twitter and you're subject to a pylon, it's horrendous. I've seen it. It's awful. Look, Twitter, Twitter is the mob. Don't forget, Twitter's many things, but one of the things you hate, you know, Twitter's immensely plastic. It can morph into many things. One of the things it is, is from time to time, the mob, and it's not a pleasant thing. So it's, it's unsurprising that uh, people are scared. It's funny. I, I share the same spelling of, of my name with the editor of the South African news outlet called The Daily Maverick. And on occasion on Twitter, I'm exposed to quite a lot of hate from people who assume that I've written an article that actually my namesake has written. And what I find fascinating is when I point out that they've got the wrong Mark Haywood, it's almost as if we go from hate to oh terribly sorry yeah. and then hate has just moved on to the right to the right yeah. to twitter handle it's so easy to hide behind though isn't it because you can be anyone you want when you're online yeah absolutely a lot of people say you know oh well we've got to end anonymity online you know i agree with this because anonymity is what enables dissidents you know what enables um, you know opposition groups opposition people uh, you know, there, there are many good reasons to be anonymous. But yeah, look, anonymity grants you a shield that unfortunately for some people gives them license to say things online that they would never dream of saying in real life. It's one of those things. I mean, look, the whole point about social media is, so when I give talks on this, I ask a question, I'll ask you the question. You may actually know the answer, but do you know how long movies were silent for? How long movies were silent for? Yeah. Uh, a, a couple of decades? Yeah, oh, you're not about 30 years. All right. You think about movies, for a third of a century, they were going before they even had sound. How old social media, really? Now, I know Facebook went public and you could get on in 2007, but like from when, we, when it started being a thing, it's probably 2010, I'd say, just before the Arab Spring, whatever. But that's 10 years. Now, it took movies 30 years to even get sound. I mean, can you imagine it, at what stage of infancy we are with this technology? Nobody really knows what to do with it. Nobody knows how to regulate it. Everybody knows that there is a huge problem with abuse. Everybody knows there's a huge problem with disinformation. It's actually a very interesting thing. I do a lot of work on that, but nobody knows what to do with it. If I want to say, if I want to say, you know, Mark, you're a murderer. If I want to write that, my, my editor will say, right, where's your evidence? I go, well, I don't have any. I'll say, well, you can't write it. If I want to tweet that, I can tweet it. And then if I, if I you know, if I've got 50,000 followers and a lot of them retweet it, you're, you're screwed, my friend. Like, you know, you can sort of sue me and maybe six months later I'll go to court, by which point it's all over. You know, every time you Google search your name and say, you know, you can ruin people's lives with this. No one quite knows how to deal with it. But we're still in the very early stages of this. So mm. I always remind people of this. It's all very early. Like, as I say, you know, movies were signing for 30 years. We don't know how this is going to go. It's like the Wild West out there. It really is in some cases. So we're going through this really disruptive. Whenever technological change comes, it's the classic thing that everyone talks about, you know. Uh, the first real, I mean, well, the first great uh, informational change is writing. But like in, in the sort of vaguely modern era, we have the printing press. Everyone talks about this. And it disrupts everything. And, you know, the, the Catholic Church ceases to be the arbiter of, of, of you know, the, the word of God. And what happens to the wars of religion come? Then you have the, telegra the telegraph. That really, and then you have in the 20s, TV and radio. And these mediums are then used a decade later by Mussolini and Hitler. And then we have World War II. Now, I'm not saying that war's coming. What I am saying is that every time there's a new evolution into, in information technologies, there's a period of great disruption. That's what's happening right now. And we're probably still only at the beginning, maybe, or the end of the beginning of it, if we look at it in historical terms. Chapter 3. Humanity Empowered. 
Professor Sunny Singh told us a couple of episodes ago, to tell stories about each other and about others is a form of power. That's what decides who we consider human. Well, that powerful sentiment really encapsulates the essence of what we're talking about today. But when we speak about fake news or the narratives of war being spread via social media, it's easy to get bogged down by its dangers, to leave out the enormous power for good that it can be. As with all things, the good and bad of social media is balanced on a knife edge. There are always two sides to a story. What Twitter does is it sort of aggregates the power of humanity. So you have, like, you know, look, so you read my book, Anna, Anna Sandalova in Ukraine. Mm. She uses Facebook to crowdfund for the army. And she's, she's delivering, like, you know, helmets to these people because they don't have them. They're trying to find them. They don't even have body armor. So she's doing, you know, a real good. And you, you could only, before, how could she have done that before Facebook? Like her, a single person, run an advert in the, the, the equivalent of the Times, or, you know, the, the Kiev Times, and she couldn't afford it. How many people did that reach? How would she find volunteers? I mean, you know, so it empowers humanity. It's, it's the essence of Homo Digitalis. I talk about that in the book. This idea of Homo Digitalis was the hyper-empowered networked individual that has the potential to do extraordinary things. Ordinary people have the potential to do extraordinary things because they're, they're empowered and networked. And when you empower and network those people, you get movements. And movements can be a force for great good, and movements can be a force for great ill. Uh, you know, movements overthrew Hosni Mubarak, movements overthrew, uh, ben- they forced Benamidi to flee in Tunisia. You know, certain movements, you know, the, you know, uh, in terms of like getting justice uh, or the Windrush stuff. So absolutely, they can do a lot of good. What's the interesting to me actually is, is looking at certain movements that you see how social media has both empowered and neutered them. So I look at the Arab Spring, it's very interesting. So the Arab Spring was absolutely fantastic Social media is absolutely fantastic for getting people onto the streets in their tens and hundreds of thousands. To do what, what they did 20 years ago would have taken six months. But what they didn't do, this is really interesting. So it, what you can do when you've got loads of people tweeting on Facebook, as it were, actually, saying, you know, meet here, meet in Tahrir Square at three o'clock, and, and everybody comes, you get people onto the street. But what that precludes, and this is what we saw, is it precludes a leadership. Because if the network is totally diffused, who is your leader? And this is the problem. Like I studied, like my first book was on Iran, I studied the Iranian revolution. And the point about this is like, there was a nucleus around like, whatever you think of Khomeini, and I'm not a fan of Ayatollah Khomeini, whatever you think of him, he was the nucleus. He had the people around him. He distributed his text. As soon as they overthrew the shop, he was there. The leader was there and they, 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 they pushed through it and they founded a state, a hornful state, but they did it. As soon as Mubarak fled, they were like, well, what do we do? Couldn't do anything because there was, there was just a diffuse bunch of people. There was no leadership. There's no nucleus. So that, I find that more interesting. It's like, actually, how, how does social media work in, set, in sort of empowering people? It empowers them. But at the same time, the seeds of its own success, in any success lies its failure, if you see what I mean. It's, I'm going to take you all the way back to Shakespeare, for the want of a better um, example. What, what you're saying is we're missing that kind of, we're missing the young, charismatic, articulate Prince Hal that becomes Henry V that leads you know, the warring nobles against a common enemy in, in France. That's how it used to be um, way back cool. when, is that you had some incredibly articulate, charismatic figure that would then yeah. take charge. Nowadays, what you have is something must be done, therefore I will set up a WhatsApp group and ask other people what should be done. It's almost as if, yeah, we've got the ability to talk about what's happening, but not necessarily somebody to lead us through it the other side. Exactly, and, and the thing is, when you set up that WhatsApp group, and they set up another WhatsApp group, you have the ability to then draw 50,000 people to your cause within a week, within a day, if necessary. But if there's no one leading them, they can make someone flee, they can overthrow someone because they're in the street, but what happens next? And as so far, 
unless you have a leadership, unless you have someone, if when, you, when you create a vacuum, you need someone or something to fill that vacuum because something will fill it. And if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. And it wasn't the revolutionaries, it was the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. I know this is a very nascent topic in terms of how long it's been around and how quickly it's changing, but where, where do you see it going? Who, who will, how will success be defined in terms of social media, do you think? I mean, if you don't engage with it, you will lose the narrative quite clearly. That comes across uh, in, your, in your book. Do you see governments and indeed people with an ideology embracing this more and more? Has it become unstoppable now? We could never go back. It will only continue. No, yeah. I mean, you can't unring this bell. I mean, you just can't go back. Now, whether it's going to be in 10 years, Facebook that we're still on or Twitter, who knows? But like platforms will be there. I mean, Going back to the pre-social media age would be like going back to like the pre-TV age. You know, how could, I mean, you just can't. No, I mean, there's no going back. The question is, look, what do you do with it? Now, let's look at then at disinformation. That's a really interesting topic because disinformation is this buzzword. You know, everyone knows about disinformation. Well, don't Russians have something to do with this? Everyone knows it's a problem. Not many people actually understand it. And what do we do about disinformation? Now, I look at disinformation. I look at how to battle disinformation. And the problem is like, we're too obsessed with content, right? We're like, well, what's this? Oh, this is, this is, this is fake. This is disinformation. It's not true. And the point is, so you ask me, where's it going? I was like, the big challenge is how do you deal with this information? And the thing is, it's not about content because here's the thing, right? Lying is not illegal and nor should it be because if we can't lie, we're all screwed. You know, oh, I love your wife. You know, wife is lovely. Oh, your baby's beautiful. I mean, if we can't do that, then society breaks down. So what you have to look at is not the misinforming content, but the misinforming actor and the misinforming behavior. So we have, you know, the Russian troll farm, right? Mm. That's the misinforming actor. That's the bad guy. That's really a nasty piece of work. That's the actor. And then you have the inauthentic behavior. Now, a lot of stuff, for example, around the 2016 election wasn't actually, you know, the, the, the Trump stuff wasn't actually lies. It was like Trump is good, Clinton bad. That's actually content neutral. It's just about emotion. It's not actually about fact. You can't say Trump is good, Hillary's bad, is true or false or whatever your opinion is. But what, what you had was inauthentic campaigns. You had, you know, Billy Bob in Tennessee was in fact Ivan in St. Petersburg. So that's how you deal with this information. You say, okay, these are the actors. This is the inauthentic campaigns. These 50,000 accounts aren't Americans from Philadelphia. They're set up by a Russian farmer being run by a bot farmer. That's how you deal with it. You can't, people get hung up on the content. That's why fake news is like, it's a misnomer because like, how do you define it? And, and there's so many things about what's true and what isn't and all this stuff. So the big things I think to deal with social media, if you can say it's a success, is how do you start to deal with these misinforming actors and these misinformed behavior? You can never stop. If, a bunch, if you and me decide we want to support, I don't know, like Boris Johnson the next election, and we start tweeting out, you know, Boris Johnson saved my baby. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not illegal. It doesn't matter. I suppose someone could sue you, but like, who cares? But if you and I decide to set up a troll farm and then set up 50,000 fade accounts, start spamming people, that can be picked up on. And that's how we need to deal with this information. And that's how, what will change social media. Because at the moment, this stuff is rife. We all know about trolls, bots, all these sorts of things. But I think a big change in, in, in the way social media is perceived, the way social media is consumed, in the way that it, it works with democracies when we get a grip on this. Because we have to. Because it's, like, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a severe problem. And as long as we're talking about that, we're not addressing some of the other contributing factors in that uh, election, which are very entrenched things like the electoral college system that exists in the U S and the fact that typically it is only a small handful of swing States that decide the election. I know people in the U S mainly New York and California who 
don't vote and won't vote because if you if you add up all of them it still wouldn't have changed anything given the electoral college system and that's nothing to do with technology that's a very deeply entrenched political system uh, david can i ask you um what's the next project for you the book's been out for for a while what else are you working on at the moment well this is the this is the interesting thing so i was i had a couple of i had a big idea on the birth of the 21st century but i'm i'm sort of I, what i might do actually slightly as a, a slight departure from the last book i might write a book on greece because i'm sort of i've been here a while um but like I was thinking about like, how do you define a country in our age? How do you define a country? It's like, if I want to, if I want to describe you, what would I do? I suppose 20 years ago, I'd sit down, I'd talk to you, I'd mull on it and I'd write something. Now I do that, but also I'd probably try and get as much of your data as possible. I like, get the data from your Facebook profile. Get, so I'm thinking like a similar thing, like how do you describe a country? You know, you can do the Paul Thoreau and DS Nipal thing and wander around and you know, you do all that, that's good. But also have a look at things. What are the, what are, what are this country's, keyword searches. I mean, I think that says a lot about a people, doesn't it? So I thought sort of, the country is sort of in this sort of way. So kind of like a travelogue memoir type thing, because obviously I'm half Greek. So it's a slight, I'm mulling it over. It's slightly different from the last one. Or I might write something on post-truth leadership. We'll see. David, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Mark. Thank you Wonderful. A massive thank you then to David Patrick Arakos for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? How we view the rights and wrongs of war, who we side with, who we trust, it's all a result of the narrative that's built up around the conflict. In your next piece of writing, try juxtaposing two points of view from characters on both sides of a conflict, with the stories running in parallel. It will offer the audience a chance to see the power of narrative in action. Without a leader, a diffuse group of people will struggle. Toy with this idea in your writing. Perhaps a movement with great momentum comes crashing to a standstill, or a leader is lost and ideals begin to fall apart. Highlight the internal role that leadership plays in our lives. In literature and television, superheroes are usually the only people who have the power to single-handedly impact the world on a global scale. But we're beginning to see individuals creating dramatic worldwide change thanks to social media. So maybe it's time to reframe our idea of saving the world and to write more in fiction about ordinary people achieving extraordinary things. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Up next week, we'll be talking about sex toys for the disabled with disability activist Andrew Gerza. Most people, when they have a wank they can do it independently whereas if you're disabled that's just not an option for you goodbye for now stay safe and keep writing